What is sin? You know, sometimes people say something and it just kind of gets rooted into your spirit. And I thought, you know, as a new believer, that obviously is a fundamental question. But I thought, you know, the truth be known that in the modern church in North America, I think most of us have forgotten the true biblical answer to that question. I want to direct your attention to Psalm 32. I'm just going to read two verses of Scripture. Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now if you have a highlighter or however you mark your Bible, I want you to mark four words in that text. The first word is transgression. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The second word that I want you to highlight is the word sin. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute the third word, iniquity, and the fourth word, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the reason why I point these four words out to you is they are not synonyms. Oftentimes those in the pulpit are guilty of taking things in the Bible and making them as synonyms when God intended them to be distinctly different. And one of the fundamental things that I want you to grasp in this service tonight is to walk away with the knowledge that not all sin is the same. Because it's common in the modern church to hear people say, and they say it innocently, and I'm not being critical, but they say, well, sin is sin. And the truth is, that's not true. Sin is not all the same in the eyes of God. And these four words mean something totally different. Here's a truth that I want to lay down for those of you that like theology and want to grasp and learn and understand. Here's one great theological truth on sin that never changes. Don't miss it. All sin separates us from God. And I should be more pinpointed. All unrepented sin separates us from right relationship with God. And many people are separated from God not because they're immoral people or bad people. I mean, I've met a lot of people who are not Christians, but they're decent people. They're moral people. They're kind people. They're generous people. They have many character qualities, oftentimes superior to those who attend the house of God. But you don't go to heaven because you're good, nor do you go to hell because you're bad. If you were to study the entirety of the ministry of Jesus Christ, you would understand this. Don't miss it. The ministry of Jesus was bad news for good people, and it was good news for bad people. It was then and it still is now. Psalm 32 was written by King David. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 down around verse 14, the Bible actually describes King David as a man after God's own heart. 
But even though David was called a man after God's own heart, he was not a flawless man. He was not a perfect man. As a matter of fact, he was a man familiar with grievous sin. He was a man who murdered. He was a man who committed adultery. He was a man who made grave error in life. But yet God called him a man after God's own heart. That is not a testament to David. That is a testament to the mercy and the long-suffering of the God that we serve. How many can say a big amen to that? To give you an example of that, who was the longest living man in the Bible? His name was Methuselah. How long did Methuselah live? 969 years. Did you know that the name Methuselah actually means when he dies, judgment will come? The word Methuselah means when he dies, judgment will come. Theologians estimate that seven days after the death of Methuselah, is when the rain started for the judgment of the flood that Noah had prepared for. Methuselah lived 969 years. Seven days after he died, the flood started. It was ceremony in that day to celebrate the death of the righteous for seven days. God allowed Methuselah to die, allowed the custom of the people to celebrate and to mourn seven days of a life well lived and then judgment fell. His father and Enoch died just prior to his death. Enoch was translated, which is a type of rapture. He didn't die, he was taken and caught up to be with the Lord. Lamech, his father, died just somewhat in a period of years before the judgment of the flood. And so those two righteous men died. Enoch was taken. Lamech died. Noah is the ark of God and the type of the rapture of the church that all who listen to the message of righteousness and prepare will one day be caught up just prior to judgment. But here's what I want you to get a hold of. That's why God allowed Methuselah to live 969 years. Because the prophecy of the Lord was when this baby dies, judgment will touch the earth. And so God allowed him to live far longer than any human being. Why? Because God gave a long window of mercy for all to be saved which talks to us of the truth in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where even in the new covenant, God said, I am willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Don't miss this. If you go to hell, it'll not be because God sent you there. It'll be because when he offered you an opportunity to make peace with God and to repent of sin and he lifted his hand of mercy and extended it your way, you rejected it and turned your back and walked out of church and said no. Now for those of you that may not know my ministry, I never preach the gospel without giving people an opportunity to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. And in the moments to come, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make peace with God. There are always two kinds of people that respond in our lost lamb events. People who have never been to church or have never come to Christ or have never heard the gospel. 
As I was getting ready to leave this morning, three native boys came in the door and came down to me. Their grandmother had sent them. And these little native boys came to me and said, before you leave, we want to do what we heard other people were doing in this church. I said, what did you hear other people were doing? They said, our grandmother said people were receiving Jesus Christ. So I said, all three of you are here in church because you want to receive Jesus Christ? They said, yes, we want to pray that prayer too. One of the little boys, I asked him, I said, have you ever been to church before? He said, no, this is the first time I've ever been inside a church. And the last thing I did before I left to fly up here was I went back down to the altar and I sat down on the altar and I took those three kids in my arms in a circle and they gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. There has to be, listen, there has to be a time in your life when you repent of sin and receive Jesus Christ. You don't go to heaven because you're religious. You don't go to heaven because you go to church. I was witnessing to a lady that just bumped into me and she said, hey, my neighbor gave me a CD. I was just walking the shores of the Kenai River. This lady hollered out from the porch. She said, I've been watching you. She said, do you sing? I said, some people call it that. She said, my neighbor gave me a CD and you look like the guy on the CD. And, uh, but God gave me an opportunity to witness. But it's amazing when you share the gospel with people how quickly they run to their religious safe place. Well, I was raised Protestant, or I was raised Catholic, or my grandmother was Baptist, or my grandfather was Presbyterian, and on and on and on people go. Don't miss this. Religion has never saved one soul. This Bible is not about religiosity. It is about right relationship with God. And one of the things that bothers me as an evangelist is to know that hell will be filled with religious, decent people who made one grandiose error. They trusted in the doctrine of their denomination, but they never repented of sin and made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. Now don't get mad at me, but I'm going to tell you the truth. You can go to church every Sunday of your life and die and go to hell. Because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. There has to be a time in your life when you do two things. Number one, you need to do it publicly and you need to do it personally. Why personally? Because the Bible says no one can do it for you. No one can repent of your sins. No one can repent of your sins. You alone have to do it personally. And why do I say publicly? Because everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. Every apostolic sermon in the book of Acts, they called them publicly. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, if you confess me publicly before men, I'll confess you openly before my Father which is in heaven. But if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before the Father and the angels. Now I'm not saying that the only place a person can be saved is in a church publicly. But if you've prayed a sinner's prayer privately somewhere in the great wilderness of Alaska, but you've never done it publicly, you need the first time you have an opportunity to get into a place of God and do it publicly. That's why they water baptized people in the New Testament. There weren't churches. It was a way of publicly testifying, I am dead and buried and resurrected in newness of life to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And all of these modern, politically correct, emergent 21st century churches that never give altar calls, or they'll say, now we're going to pray a prayer. God sees your heart. You can just bow your head. You don't even have to move your lips. Just think it inside your head. God, that's not biblical. And furthermore, camouflage prayers produce camouflage Christians. And the last thing this world needs is a bunch of camouflage cowards calling themselves Christians. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Come on and somebody shout praise God. Now get ready because I'm going to go through this really quick. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The modern church doesn't even like the word sin and most of the time won't use it. I love to listen to good preachers, but amazing how many won't preach on sin or hell or heaven or eternity or the second coming of Jesus Christ or all of the things that when I grew up were the core values of the Pentecostal movement. People don't have sin anymore, they have dysfunction. People don't have sin anymore, they have baggage. People don't have sin anymore, they have frailties. People don't have sin anymore, they have the weaknesses of the flesh. People don't have sin anymore, they have carnal attitudes. And I listen to all of this being preached today. And we stand before God and God is holy, but we are a people of blemishes. Listen, your acne's not going to get out of heaven. It's your sin. And let me tell you something. You don't have baggage. You don't have luggage. You don't have stuff in the closet. You don't have frailties. You don't have dysfunction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this preacher loves you enough to call sin, sin. With all of that said, word number one, the Bible speaks of transgression. This implies defiance. Transgression is a type of sin that is defiant. Think of it as shaking your fist in the face of God in rebellion to authority. That's what transgression is. Now, one of the mistakes that people make, and I'm really praying that this point is made well and I'll reiterate it several times, is don't ever again tell people sin is sin. Or I heard one preacher say years ago, well, it doesn't matter whether you steal a dollar out of your grandmother's purse or you rob a federal bank, both are stealing and both are sin. No, that's not true. Bring a child before a judge and someone who robbed a federal bank and see if the judge gives the four-year-old who stole grandmother's $1 bill the same sentence as he does a man that robbed a federal bank. And one of the things that you're going to find out is that they'll not both receive the same sentence. And people oftentimes, I'm sure you're in great places here. You've, how many would thank God for a great pastor and a great church? But a lot of people don't know that sin is weighed in the eyes of God based upon how vile it is. Wow. Now remember what I said. Don't miss this. 
I already told you that all sin, all unrepented sin, breaks fellowship with God. That's right. Amen. Now, if you're a believer, it doesn't always break relationship. But it will break fellowship if you have unrepented sin in your heart. Why? Because the Bible says that the Lord can hear the prayers of a man who hides iniquity in his heart. It literally shuts down the volume of your prayer when you get comfortable with unrepented sin. And we live in a day and an age in which there's heresy being preached on grace that I just can't even hardly understand why anybody accepts it as normal and it's almost celebrated. Any teaching on grace that makes you feel comfortable with sin is heresy. Any teaching on grace that makes you feel comfortable with sin is heresy. The apostle Paul said, should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. We believe in the grace and the forgiveness of God. We believe in the mercies of the Lord. But that teaching that allows people to live with the same lifestyle they had before they were redeemed is not of God. Can you say a big praise God? Well, I can tell by the deer and the headlights look in some of your eyes. I better back this up. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions, will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return, and when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. If I had time, I could take you into the doctrines of the Scripture concerning the eternal judgment and wrath of hell and show you that not everyone in hell has the same consequence. The Bible says that in the eternity of the judgment of hell, some will be punished with few stripes and some will be punished with many stripes. Are you still with me? Number one, transgression. That implies defiance. That is shaking your fist in the face of a holy God. That's that attitude of people who say, no preacher is going to tell me what to do. No church is going to tell me how to live. I'm not into this religious stuff. My church is in the woods with a gun in the fall. That's my cathedral. And these people who have the attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do. They literally are shaking their fist in defiance in the face of a holy God. The Bible tells me that that also is the spirit of Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4, the Antichrist will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. That spirit permeates North America today. We live in a country where they think they're God. The federal government thinks they're God. They think they're in charge. They think they can change the course of history and society. And they lift themselves up in places they should not be lifted. But I am here to tell you that the government is not in control. No nation on the planet is in control. Satan is not in control. The liberals are not in control. The conservatives are not in control. My God in heaven is still in control. 
But the Bible says in the second coming of Jesus, in that eighth verse, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. There's coming a day in the second coming of Christ when all who have shook their fist in the face of a holy God are going to realize how puny they really were. Number two, sin. Now sin implies a defect. Transgression is a type of sin that is defiance. Sin implies a defect. Now, many of you that have been students of the word for a while, you've heard people describe or define sin as falling short of the mark. If I were to take my granddaughter when she's old enough and want to teach her how to bow hunt and take her out in my backyard and begin to teach her the fundamentals of archery and give her her first arrow, you could pretty well bet the farm that she's not going to hit the target. Pretty rare for a kid learning how to shoot bow and arrow that they're going to miss the target. First arrow might go high, second arrow might go low, left or right, but eventually as they learn the skill, they'll at least get arrows on target. This is what the word sin here in the original Hebrew means. It means people who are trying in their own efforts to be good. But even though they're trying and they're moral and decent people on this earth, they're falling short of the mark. Because being right with God is not your doing. Being right with God is not meritorious. Being right with God doesn't happen because of your conduct and your good behavior. You're not saved by being good. You're saved by recognizing the curse of sin and bowing before the blood-stained cross and trusting in the power of Christ alone. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short. Literally what it means. You're trying, but your arrows are missing the target. Falling short of God's glorious standard. Verse 24, yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in the 7th chapter of Romans. He said in verse 18, And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, Paul is not testifying here of his relationship with Christ. He, in this passage and in its context, is defining what his life was like before he came to Christ as a religious man. But a lot of people identify with that passage. Do you know how many people I've met through the years that have come to me after a lost lamb crusade, met me in the back of an auditorium or a church, and said, Tiff, I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. And there's almost a sympathy you feel for those people, but you have to love them enough to say, now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Being a good old boy doesn't get you into heaven. Trying doesn't get you into heaven. Doing the best you can does not make you right with God. Can I ask you a very simple question? And though it's a simple question, it is perhaps the most important question that you'll ever hear in your lifetime, and that's not an exaggerated claim. Because how you answer this question I'm about to ask you 
may very well determine where you spend eternity. Those of you that are watching online, don't miss this. Ask yourself this question. Do you have a clear, distinct memory of a time in your life, clear, distinct memory of a time in your life when you've gotten down on bended knees in the presence of a holy God and repented of your sin and asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior? Have you ever done that? Publicly? Personally? That lady who started asking me questions the other day on the Kenai River. I said, ma'am, don't worry about all of the things. You're making it sound really complicated. I said, getting right with God is as simple as ABC. And I want to share it with you tonight. A, admit your sin. There has to be a time in your life when you bow in the presence of a holy God and say, God, I am a sinner. B, believe in Jesus Christ. Not just believe he existed, not just believe he was a great teacher or prophet, not just believe he was a revolutionary in world history, but believe he's the son of God. Believe he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that he loves sinners and believe that he can break the curse of sin, he can break the curse of sickness, he can break the curse of poverty. Believe that he'll be your Lord and Savior. And see, you have to make a commitment to him by faith. In other words, you're not going to understand everything in the Bible up front. But here's my advice to you as a man who's been in ministry for over 40 years and been in 55, almost 56 countries of the world. Give your heart to Jesus now and figure the rest of it out as you go. Because if you try to figure it out before you get right with God, you're never going to make it. Because you can't get saved through intellectual approach alone. It's got to get through your hardened head and down into your heart. Years ago, I used to preach a message entitled, Missing Heaven by 18 Inches. Because I read somewhere, I think it was Reader's Digest, that the average distance between the human brain and the human heart is 18 inches. And a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches because they kept trying to figure everything about God and the Bible and church and religion out in their head. And they weren't smart enough to figure out that relationship with God begins in a humble heart. I heard a totally unchurched child say to a Sunday school teacher, totally unchurched, totally unsafe family, to a Sunday school teacher, you know one thing I believe, teacher? I believe Jesus is both really little and really big. And the teacher said, what do you mean? He said, I believe he's so little that he can live in my heart. But I believe he's so big that he can rule the world. Sign that kid up for seminary. There's a world changer in the making. If only people could learn that there has to be a time in your life that you get down in humility before a holy God and say, God, I am a sinner. Come into my heart. Forgive me. I'm willing to repent. The very first message of Jesus was repent and believe. The very last message of Jesus was repent and believe. 
the entire ministry, core values, theology, ministerial training, infancy of the church, healing, everything about the ministry of Jesus was bookended between two basic evangelistic messages. Repent and believe. The modern church preaches believe, but Jesus said you've got to repent and believe. It's not enough to intellectually believe. You must spiritually repent. What does that mean? We don't use that word much in the modern church. One of the best definitions of repent in the modern church is simply make a U-turn. It means you're headed in the wrong direction. Make a U-turn. You're walking your way, your will, your aspiration, your goals, your toys, your pleasure. Salvation is saying, God, I am willing in childlike faith to turn my back on sin and to start walking towards God. When I give the invitation in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to meet me at this altar. Because some of you, if you'd be honest with yourself and honest with God, no judgment. I'm not here to beat you up with the Bible. If you're the worst sinner in Wasilla, tonight I'm your best friend. I just love you enough to tell you the truth. But when I give the invitation, some of you, if you'd be honest with God, you've never made your own personal and public commitment to Christ. And I'm going to ask you in just a few moments to meet me at this altar and pray. Now, if you can't kneel, you can stand. If you just had a knee surgery or a hip surgery or you're a war veteran, you've got shrapnel in your knee like one man did not long ago on one of our crusades and didn't have mobility in one of his legs because of his war wound, you can stand. Or when I saw that 97, 98-year-old woman come forward, if you're elderly, you can sit in one of the front seats. But we're going to pray together a biblical prayer. It's not my prayer. It's not a denominational prayer. It's straight out of the pages of the Bible. And you can leave here tonight knowing you're right with God. I look out over this audience and I see a lot of people from old to young. I see some young men sitting together. I see some people that have their children with them. I see elderly people here. The point is you're never too old and you're never too young to give your heart to Jesus Christ. My crusade before I came to Alaska in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, on the last night there were many people that came forward, but three of them were from a local gang. And they came together as a group of boys, all three of them, broken, not stiff-necked and trying to be tough, I mean broken. And one in particular was really broken, and I'll never forget, I don't think as long as I live I'll ever forget what that boy kept saying to me. Preacher, are you really sure that God can forgive all the stuff I've done? Even in the parking lot after it was all said and done, he came to me one last time. Preacher, I know I asked this, but I want to ask you one more time. Are you really sure that God can forgive me of all of my sins? I said, I didn't say it, son. The Bible said it. It still says in the book of Romans, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And one of the main points tonight is to understand there's no sin in your life, there's no sin in your past greater than the mercies of the Lord. Hell has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. Hell has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. Hell has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. 
I was getting in my truck to head back to the hotel and they came running one last time across the parking lot. I thought, well, Lord, I'll tell him again. But that wasn't it. They had all gone to their truck and got their colors, their gang colors and their hats. And they said, if we're going to live for Jesus, we can't have the gang colors anymore. We just made a decision. We're going to give this all to you. Do with it what you want. Well, I wanted to throw it in the dumpster and that's exactly what I did when I got to the hotel. Hell has forged no chains. Then heaven cannot break. Number three, iniquity. Transgression is defiance. Sin is a defect. Iniquity is distortion. Iniquity, the sin of iniquity in the Hebrew implies distortion or perverseness. It comes from a Hebrew word that means crooked or bent. Pastor Bracken, sometime when the Lord leads you and you have time, take this message and run with it because there's so much meat on the bone that I can't cover tonight. But listen to this. Don't miss this. Have you ever asked yourself, how could someone do something so perverted? Every now and then on the news, you'll hear a crime against an innocent child or things that can't even be repeated in a public place. And you hear it on the news and you ask yourself, how could anyone... How could any human being do something that perverted, do something that disgusting? It's because of iniquity. It implies a distortion. There is a place in sin where your whole fabric becomes distorted. My dad, who's gone home to be with the Lord, who is a really unique man, I, I wish to God you all had a chance to meet him. He would have loved you to pieces. My dad came from a little West Virginia coal mining town and was pretty rugged around the edges. But I, to this day, remember my father saying about a certain man in town, I would never do, it was a Christian, I would never do business with that man. He is so crooked when he dies, they're going to have to screw him into the ground. Never forget that. That man is so crooked. When he dies, they're going to have to screw him in the ground. Well, that's exactly in West Virginia language what iniquity means. There is a bent, crooked perverseness that if a person lives long enough in sin... There is a demonic spirit that comes upon people whereby they begin to do things. That's why God said some sins are perversion. Not all sin is the sin, same sin to God. A pedophile in hell is not going to have the same punishment as others. Their punishment will be severe. The Bible teaches that. Some many stripes, some few stripes. That's why God said in the Bible, some sins are an abomination. That's why God said in Romans chapter 1 that there are certain sexual acts that are so vile to God that if you continue to live in that perverseness, he said, I'll give you up to a reprobate mind. Now when God says he'll give you up to a reprobate mind, you know that the sin you're involved in is an abomination. I don't have time, but when you get a chance, read Romans chapter 1. And you're going to find that there are sexual sins that in the eyes of God are so wicked, so violational, so perverse, so bent, so crooked that God said, if you keep doing that, 
You will literally have a mind that can't hear the mind of God, the voice of God, the calling of God. It's not God giving up on you. It's your mind rotting under your perversion to the point that you become spiritually deaf. Human nature is warped and bent and twisted. Philippians 2.15, so that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Let's just be honest. We live in a crooked and a perverse society. I love America, but America has become so perverse we can't tell the difference between a man and a woman. New York just passed a law that identifies in the workplace 22 genders. You figure that out. But it's legal in New York City, in the workplace, they have to recognize 22 genders, two of which are demonic spirits. Lastly, and I close with this. To the best of my ability, it looks like 7.30 has passed us by. Listen carefully. Number four, deceit. And deceit means exactly that. It means deception. Transgression is defiance. Sin is a defect. Iniquity is a distortion. Transgression is defiance, shaking your fist in the face of a holy God. Sin is a defect. People are trying, but they can't hit God's target. They're trying to be decent and moral, but because they're doing it in religiosity or in their own efforts, they're falling short of the glorious standard of God. Iniquity is distortion that leads to perversion and crookedness and lastly deceit. And this one is tough because this type of sin, it, it is what makes it hard for people who are good to come to Christ. Let me read the scripture. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4. By the way, Tiff hasn't changed. I'm still one of those preachers that starts in the Bible, stays in the Bible, and finishes in the Bible. I figured out a long time ago, God doesn't anoint my opinions. He anoints his word. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. That word perishing in the original Greek means face judgment for unrepented sin. The same word perish found in John chapter 3 verse 16, the most memorized verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Same thing, perish. Face God with unrepented sin. Listen, don't miss this. You don't want to stand before God in eternity's morning with unrepented sin in your heart. Verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. The Bible says here that people who are unsaved, their minds are deceived and their eyes are blinded to the truth of God. That's why you can't debate somebody into the kingdom of God. You can't argue on Facebook people into your belief system. It is a spiritual thing whereby the Holy Spirit, don't miss this, only the Holy Spirit can convict people of sin and convince them of their need of Christ and you'd be a whole lot better to quit debating on Facebook and get on your knees and start praying for your unsaved friends.
Because they're blind. They're blind. The Bible said they're veiled to spiritual truth. You know how you can tell if you're blinded and lost? If you go to church, and while church is going on, you're continually having thoughts about, I can't wait to get out of here, or I wonder what I'm going to eat when I leave, or I wonder when I'm going to meet my friends, or you're texting during the sermon because your phone's more important than the eternal word of God. If you're one of those people who while you sit in the house of God, you constantly are bombarded with the things of this world, let me love you enough to tell you you're either not saved or you're backslidden. Thank you for all those amens. Probably should have taken my offering first, Pastor. Listen carefully. Don't miss this. But when I give the invitation in just a moment, I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to preach the Bible. But I also love you enough not to leave you in your sin. You can come to this altar. I'm not going to keep you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not asking you to become a Protestant. I'm not asking you to become a Catholic. I'm not asking you to become a Baptist or a Presbyterian. I'm not into religiosity if you haven't figured it out by now. I want you to be right with God and I want you to be ready to meet the Lord when he comes. Preacher, Tiff, just tell me, how can I get right with God? I already did. It's as simple as ABC. Admit your sin, believe in Christ, make a commitment. And when we pray up the altar in just a moment... This is your commitment time. Musicians, would you come? Listen, this is your commitment time. By meeting me at this altar in just a moment, and I'm going to give clear instruction, but by coming to this altar, you're saying in childlike faith, I want to be ready to meet the Lord. By coming to this altar, you're saying in childlike faith, not to me, you're saying it to God, God, I want to be a real Christian. I don't want to be one of those phony Christians. I don't want to be one of those part-time Christians. I don't want to be one of those hypocritical Christians. God, I want to be a real Christian. By coming to this altar, you're saying, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. By coming to this altar, you're saying, I am willing to repent of my sin. Notice I didn't say able, because you're not able to repent of your sins. You have to be willing. Let me put it to you this way. Listen very carefully. You don't straighten out your life and come to God. You come to God and He'll straighten out your life. You've got to come tonight with your transgression. You're going to have to come tonight with your sin. You're going to have to come tonight with your iniquity. You're going to have to come tonight with your deceit. You don't straighten out your life and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and He'll straighten out your life. You're going to have to come with your sin. You're going to have to come with your addiction. You're going to have to come with your vice. You're going to have to come with your habit. You're going to have to come with all of the reasons why you've never served the Lord. You're going to have to come by faith. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, Whoever follows me, listen, whoever follows me, must be willing to take up a cross and follow me. One of the largest problems I see with the modern church is we're raising a generation of Christians who know how to hang around the cross. But the Bible says you have to be on the cross and crucified. 
It's not enough to hang around the cross. You've got to lay down on the cross and say, Lord, I surrender all. Hebrews 3.13, you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. As I close my Bible, let this last thought get deep. When God extends an invitation to get right with Him and you say no or you say I'll think about it or give me some time to mull that over, it's all the same thing. It's rejection. And every time God extends a hand of love and forgiveness your way and you turn your back and walk away for whatever excuse you've conjured up, the Bible says you harden your heart. In a handful of weeks, I'm going to be someplace that if God himself didn't constantly over the past five years deal with my heart, I'd never go. My board's not supportive of me going. My, my wife is definitely not supportive of me going. Most of my friends aren't supportive of me going. But why should people be allowed to hear the gospel invitation twice? Or three times? Or five times when so many people in the world have never heard it once? My life belongs to Christ. And evangelists are called to go ye into all the world. Not just places that have four-star hotels. All the world. And preach the gospel. And I want to tell you folks something. I laid my life down a long time ago. No one can take it from me. The Bible said, fear not those who can take the body. But fear those who can take body and soul. I belong to the resurrected Christ and I'm going to live forever and forever. And until people say, how do you want to die? I want to die when I'm about 120 preaching. And when I give my last invitation, I'd like to be able to go down and sit down in a seat and say, thank you, Lord, for that last opportunity. If my expiration date is right now, I'm ready to go. But the last time I read the Bible, it said, With long life, I will satisfy thee. Praise God. Stand to your feet. Thank you this evening for your patience. I hope this word, like seed and fertile ground, remains in your heart and mind forever. Now here's what I want you to do. Some of you that are going to pray with me, Maybe you've just been coming to King's Chapel here in Wasilla for a week or a few weeks. You've been listening to Pastor Brackett. You've been listening to the Bible. You've been listening to the worship. But you've not really made your own personal and public commitment. And you know that tonight's your night. For some of you, it might be the very first time. But I always extend an opportunity because I've learned that there are people in the world who for whatever reason, it's not mine to judge, but for whatever reason, Listen, you're not living in victory over sin. Sin is living in victory over you. And you know that. And you still go through all of the Christian motions. But the preacher came to remind you tonight, Jesus said in Matthew 7, the road that leads to heaven is straight and narrow. And few there be that find it. Can I tell you there's no sin worth going to hell over? There's no drug worth going to hell over. There's no drink worth going to hell over. 
There's no man worth going to hell over. There's no woman worth going to hell over. There's no pleasure worth going to hell over. Are you living in victory over sin or is sin living in victory over you? You said, Tiff, what are you saying? I'm saying some of you, if you'd be honest, you're away from the Lord. You once served the Lord, but as Bible prophecy said, that in the last days, through the cares of this world, many will fall away. And you need to come back home to Christ and need to make a recommitment. When I give the invitation, I always ask those that have the courage, you be the very first ones to come. Your courage will help somebody that doesn't have the same courage you have. That's just human nature. But Christian, I'm going to ask you what I ask people to do every night in our Lost Lamb events. As the Holy Spirit is drawing people and the worship team sings a song of invitation, just very simple words done in kindness, not in arrogance, not in force. But just with a kind spirit, I want you to take inventory of the people that might be sitting next to you. Friends, family, neighbors, people you've invited. Maybe someone you don't know from a hole in the ground, new to the church. But I want you, if you're not sure that the person beside you is right with God, just with a kind spirit, as people are gathering, turn to them and say this. I'll walk with you. Those four words, literally, I see thousands upon thousands of people every year that get saved in Lost Lamb events because a Christian being led by the Spirit at the invitation takes stock of whoever God placed them by in the service and being very sensitive to that leading of the Spirit, they turn to them and say, if you want to make that commitment, I'll walk with you. Saw it this morning. believe we'll see it tonight. Some of you young people need to have enough courage to turn to your friends that are sitting by you. Somebody needs to be a leader in your group and start blazing a trail to heaven. And turn to a friend and say, you know what? We've messed this stuff up long enough. Let's get it right tonight. I'll walk with you. Come on. And if God is speaking to your heart, I'm going to kneel here and pray that God will give you the courage to do what you ought to do. And as they sing, God's speaking to your heart. You come and then we'll pray before Pastor Bracken dismisses. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I Come on, God's speaking to your heart. Come on. Tonight's your night. Come on. We're going to pray with those of you that are at this altar. If you're not here and you want to come, come quickly. If there's an older person nearby and they need some help, be sensitive and help them. Prayer is talking to God from a sincere heart. The only reason I'm going to ask you to pray with me is because I meet people everywhere I go who've never been to church or don't know how to pray. But tonight, this is God's word. Listen, this is God's word, not my word. It says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's promise. Pray this with me out loud and without shame. Say, Heavenly Father, tonight as I was listening to the Bible, you were speaking to me. 
down deep in my heart. I want to be a real Christian. The Bible says all have sinned. God, that includes me. You know everything that I have ever done. But tonight I repent. In childlike faith, I turn my back on sin. And I turn my heart to Jesus. I ask you, Lord, with the blood you shed upon the cross, wash me tonight and make me holy in your eyes. Cleanse my mind, my body and spirit. For I invite you, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And give me the power to be what you want me to be. This night, I receive salvation as the gift of God. And I thank you, Father, that I am no longer the property of sin. I am tonight a child of God. And I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Give the Lord a mighty hand of praise. Praise God. Listen, as Pastor Bracken comes, just very carefully, if you prayed that prayer with me, this is not the end of what God's going to do with your life. It's just the beginning. Every successful Christian has four habits. They read their Bible every day. They pray every day. They go to church every Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they win their friends and family to Christ. Say, I don't know how to do that. If you do the first three things, the last one will come naturally. But this church is going to help you. If you're a new believer, this church is going to help you. This pastor is going to help you. The leadership of this church is going to help you. And I want to send you a gift from the partners that support this ministry. It's a CD and it's free. No strings attached. No postage. No handling. It's called Living the Christian Life. And it covers those four teachings out of the Bible. And here's what I want you to do. Listen to it until you've pretty well committed it to memory. Why? Because this is how, when you learn those simple things that I'm going to show you, this is how you're going to learn how to serve God successfully, and this is how you're going to make sure that your friends and family go to heaven with you. Because God didn't save you to make you a failure. God saved you to make you a success, and He'll lead you and guide you in truth. So whoever's in charge of the altars, make sure you get names and addresses. Leave it at the altar. They'll give you instructions on that. I love you, Wasilla. We'll see you in the fall if the Lord tarries. God bless you.